Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. We exist to respond to the questions you don't feel comfortable asking in church. We are brought to you by Browncroft Community Church and also the Luma Vaz Network out of Saddleback in California. Today, um, we have a friend, dare I say family member, but we don't know what to call it, Scott Savage. Scott, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Peter. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited for this season that the podcast is in, and I'm excited to be a part of it. Awesome. Well, we are uh, in this series called Why Do I Still Follow Jesus? Um, And don't think that because Scott is a pastor that he's going to have some um, just kind of I don't know, just straightforward answer. I I think there's some meandering in a good way that'll relate to your story. Scott, let's just kind of jump right in. I kind of like these one-on-ones, you know, for our podcast. We had you on, you were talking about burnout. Why don't you just give us a life update in the last, I think it was two years ago that we had you on. So I, I pulled it up this morning and I was on the podcast on March the 9th of 2020. So... Literally the next Sunday, our church shut down. Everybody ran out of toilet paper. We bought masks. We bought stock and hand sanitizer. So a lot has happened in the life and in my world uh, <laughs> in the last three and a half years. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say that I uh, I shared a lot about burnout on that episode, and I would say that uh, until I went on sabbatical about. Six months ago, I would say I was headed for it again. Mm. Um, just the the pace of things post COVID, we had a lot of transition in our team. Um, our church lost the venue we met in. It was a. It's been a pretty challenging three and a half years professionally, but also some stuff personally. So I feel like I've been, I've been, I've been through a lot of life, and uh, it may say three and a half years on the calendar, but it feels like a decade of experience. So there's a lot that's happened in the last few years. Well, let's kind of unpack that because this question, why do I still follow Jesus? Um, I think you and I both as pastors would be lying if in the last three and a half years we didn't ask that question um, for a number of different reasons, if we're really honest and the doubt, kind of the burnout. So unpack these last three and a half years, maybe with the two or three kind of biggest things that you walked through that were really, really hard? Well, I would say first, um, you know, uh, there's a guy named Terry Wardle, and he's a mentor to pastors. And he has a quote that says, ministry is a series of ungrieved losses. Mm. And I think that's absolutely true. I think it's probably bigger than that. I think life is a series of ungrieved losses. And we live in a culture that that does not know how to do grief well. Um, we give people a couple days off when someone dies and then we expect them to come back ready to jump back into their life and their job as if nothing happened. And when people are still processing grief, we're like, aren't you over that by now? Mm. Um, but what I've learned about grief is that grief does not have a calendar. Um, and it does not care whether you or someone else thinks you should be over it. And so we experienced in 2020 about 40% of our church moved on to another church over about an 18 month period. Mm. And so there was a lot of uh, feelings of abandonment and betrayal and disappointment. Um, I saw things from people that I thought loved and followed Jesus that looked nothing like Jesus. Uh, I watched people on the internet and in our community who 
who claimed to love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbors themselves. And I was like, there is nothing close to that coming out of you right now. And so it did provoke a lot of questions and confusion, um, a lot of frustration and a tremendous amount of grief. And so I stepped into the sabbatical six months ago, not knowing just how much I had to grieve and how many things had kind of hit me both big and then little paper cuts that over time added up to, you know, some big questions for me to wrestle with about faith and my calling, but also some deep work emotionally to do to process through the pain that I'd experienced to make sure that I, A, wasn't leading out of pain and B, wasn't transferring my pain onto somebody else. So, like, let's let's kind of back up to... You said you had a sabbatical six months ago. How long was the sabbatical? Uh, three months. Three months. So I've been back for three months. So let's go to six months before the sabbatical. How did you know that you needed a sabbatical, or what were the signs? You know, how were you kind of walking into that decision? Well, I'm grateful that I'm part of a church that has a policy where you have regular cadences for that. So after six years, all of our pastoral staff gets a sabbatical and it varies in length and the resources you get vary based upon your role. But so I was due last summer. So summer of 22, I was due and we had enough staff transition that I didn't feel I didn't feel comfortable walking away from my team and my church in that position. We needed to get to a little bit more stable place. And so I started, you know, I knew I was due because of the calendar, but then I started noticing that I was having a really hard time turning off my brain when I went to bed and on the weekends. Um, I started realizing, hey, I can't remember the last time I had two days off in a row. I'm supposed to be off Friday and Saturday, but I'm always working on Friday. And I come up with excuses to say it. Um, I kept saying, this is a season, this is a season. And I realized I had said that the previous year and I'd said that in the spring and it was in the fall. And so I realized that I was, I was turning reasons into excuses. Um, I noticed there were times where writing sermons was harder. I just wasn't feeling the level of inspiration and passion, um, that I had. Um, and there were some really intense things that happened, um, last year that I just noticed, Hey, I think I'm, 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 I'm a w more reactive. Um, I've got, a, uh, my trigger is a lot more sensitive to set me off than it used to be. And so I just started realizing, Hey, like I probably should, I probably should step back and it, it probably is time. And so by the time I got to my sabbatical this summer, you know, it was a year overdue and I really, really needed it. I needed the reset. Mm. What was the biggest emotion you were feeling before your sabbatical and kind of during your sabbatical? I would say before my sabbatical, it was weariness. I just, I just felt tired. Mm. Um, I had some health issues the last couple of years that have been really frustrating. Um, I was dealing with some stuff in my personal life that was really taxing. Um, I was, you know, finding myself going to going to my counseling sessions. I've been in therapy for five years and even my 90 minute sessions, there was just no way there was always more stuff to deal with. And I just felt like, there was just so much that I was carrying. I felt weary. Um, and that verse from Matthew 11, you know, where Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. I was like, yeah, it's me, 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 me. Um, but I, I didn't know how to, how to get beyond the weariness with what I felt like I had to do. 
on the sabbatical, I felt, um, I felt grief because I finally slowed down enough um, that all those things that I didn't necessarily have to deal with or face when I was um, going 100 miles an hour, all those kind of rose to the surface. Kind of like when you're stirring a pot and then you stop stirring it and all the things that are at the bottom kind of rise to the top. Um, I All these emotions. So it, it was grief, but it was a lots of different emotions that I think I had been able to like consciously or subconsciously suppress because I was going so fast. Um, so I ended up crying way more um, than I expected on the sabbatical. I ended up grieving more. Part of grief is anger. So I had more anger than I expected. Um, so yeah, it, it's hard to pin the during the sabbatical. It was three months and it was a lot of emotions. Um, but on the other side of it, it felt like I could, I could breathe again. It felt like I had processed through that so that it wasn't like, I wasn't feeling the need to suppress anything. I don't think I was suppressing anything anymore. I was, I was kind of moving through the emotions and they were moving through me. Um, I want to kind of honor confidentiality, you know, kind of like a counselor and a pastor and there's certain roles, but give us some like concrete examples of some of the little thousand cuts that you grieved and maybe got angry at. Like what were some of those things? And I guess I asked that in the context too of we talk a lot about church hurt and that's kind of where this question, why do I still follow Jesus? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of related to like, why does the church suck at relationships? Um, you know, why, <laughs> why does the church suck at being human? I don't know if I'm supposed mm-hmm. to suck on the podcast, but Hey, we're in this topic, but you know, give us a few examples of kind of concrete of what were some of the little cuts that you were trying to process or yeah, I mean, so we we ended up being um, because our venue uh, closed. We met in we were we were portable at that time, and um, and then it reopened with really stringent protocols, and then they closed again. So we were online for twenty eight out of thirty four weeks in twenty twenty, and so a bunch of our people just said, "I can't do online anymore," or there were other churches that were open, and so they moved on to those churches because they wanted to be with people in person, um, and so we would, I would have a sense that we still had some people with us because I assumed they were still online. And then, you know, I make some comment about them in a meeting and they go, oh yeah, they, they left three months ago. And I was like, are you kidding me? Um, and these are people that had been with us for, for years. They were, they were core people. And for them to walk away and never say anything was just really, really hard because it felt like abandonment. Uh, there were people that you had showed up for and, um, walked with life crisis with and you felt bonded to. Um, and then they walked away for what I felt like were unbiblical, um, not like first tier were compromising the gospel reasons and then never said anything. And I was like, man, I just would love to know that because then we run into each other in the store because we don't live in a huge community and it'd be super awkward. And it'd be like, look, I know you left. You didn't tell me, but somebody else did. Why does it have to be awkward? You know, if we could have had a conversation, you know, we could have blessed you on your way out. And so there was a lot of that. When you, when you see hundreds of people leave your church in a short period of time um, and you're not around them because you're not open. And then when you reopen, you know, our, our last Sunday before we closed, we were at 700 people in person. And our first Sunday back in person, we had like 100 people, you know, so a bunch of people were still watching online. But you just you feel like, oh, my gosh, did I? um 
did I fail? Did I do something wrong? Um, is, was it me? Did they leave because of me? Um, and then you have all the other feelings of, of betrayal and abandonment. Um, so I, I think those were some of the, some those are some of the cuts. And, and when that happens with person after person or family after family, um, you know, that can, that takes its toll. Um, and you're trying to project a really positive, exciting, Hey, we're moving forward. We're being resilient. God still work. And, you know, and you don't have a, it's not, it's not a place for the pulpit for that conversation. That's from my counselor's office, you know, but you, you, you don't want to be dishonest with how you're feeling. So if somebody asks you, Hey, how's it going? You know, you kind of want to say, well, do you really want to know how much time do you have? Can I trust you? Um, and so that's why I think sometimes the church can suck at vulnerability because I think some people really don't want to know. They, they really don't want that raw, um, Peace, and if you're in leadership, I think there is a there is this expectation, whether it's stated or unstated, whether it's internal or it's external, that you have to project a certain you know positivity, health, etc. And if you're struggling, sometimes it's it's hard to know can I can I be this honest? Can I share that struggle? Will people lose their faith? Will they still want to follow me? Um, I don't want to turn my sermon into a therapy session, but I also want to be honest about where I actually am. So that that's a pretty difficult road to navigate as a follower of Jesus and as a leader. Mm. Um, so all of this plays into the fact that you just wrote a resource on the wilderness. So I think this is probably a good time. Um, why, why did you write it? What is the wilderness? And why does it matter to this question? Why do I still follow Jesus? Yeah, I mean, I, so right as I was coming on your show three and a half years ago, I was preaching through a sermon series, like leading up to what became the 2020 that none of us expected, um, called In the Wilderness. Um, and I had just discovered that wilderness was this huge theme in the Old and New Testament, that there were people who ended up in a place that they never planned to be, um, that was surprising and uncomfortable, that stretched them and challenged them. And yet, time after time, God met them, and he did this incredible work in that situation. And so I was teaching my people about this, and then we kind of stepped into what I would call a wilderness as a, as a culture. You know, it was unexpected. It it surprised us. It challenged us. It stretched us. Um, we wanted to get out of it as soon as we could. But what we found is it was it was inviting us to change and transform and grow in some needed ways. And so... So I had been probably going back 15 years in different ways. I had been studying this concept um, and I'd had a couple of personal experiences that I was able to teach out of that really were profound moments of wilderness for me. Um, and so this summer when I was on sabbatical, I read this study that said that the average person goes through a personal crisis every 18 months and th those personal crises about five of those in your life are going to be major. So that might be like you're battling cancer, you declare bankruptcy, you get divorced, you bury a child or a parent unexpectedly, um, you get fired from a job. Um, and then there's just the regular life crisis, a relationship that you thought was close, that person betrays you, um, you know, you get in a car accident, you know, there's little life crises like that. And I was like, man, if, if that's how regular this is, 
and wilderness is so consistent in scripture, this is something people are going to experience again and again and again. And most of the time when we're in a wilderness, we feel completely caught off guard. It's hard to get a sense of grounding and we don't know what to do. And so what we end up doing is just crying out to God, get me out of here. And we rage against the wilderness. Um, and, and what we, what people often say was that was, that was such a waste. You know, that was a waste of an experience. That was a waste of a season. I didn't get to what I wanted to do. I lost this thing. And, and, and what I love about scripture is it's so honest and it shows us that God doesn't waste suffering. He doesn't waste pain. He doesn't waste difficulty. He actually leverages it. And so, so what I felt challenged by as I was working through some of my wilderness this summer and I started writing about it, um, and it's now a five-day devotional plan on the YouVersion Bible app that people can download. It's called Get Me Out of the Wilderness. I said, what, if, what would happen if we shifted our, our statement from God, get me out of here, to God, what do you want me to get out of here? And we just shifted from that closed get me out of here statement to curiosity. What might change? Hmm. So... Uh, let let's talk to people that might not be a Christian, like, and I think you hinted at this, but I just think we say wilderness, it kind of resonates like, oh, there's nothing growing there. Um, and you kind of mentioned bankruptcy and divorce and losing a loved one, like a child or a parent, but like, how do you define wilderness if you had to tell it to someone? Like, what does it look like or what does it symbolize? Like, how would you explain it to someone? So it's, so we often think of wilderness in terms of geography. We think of wilderness as a place. Mm -hmm. Like I drove out of my town and then I went through this wilderness on the highway. We think of it as a place. Um, and wilderness can be a place if we're moving into it and it feels barren, but it can also be a circumstance. And so I tell people wilderness is either a place in your life or it's a circumstance in your life where what you leaned on, what you depended on, what you used to navigate life, some piece of that is ripped away. Maybe it's a person that you lost, and so you don't know how to navigate life without that person anymore. Maybe it was a resource, a job, money, a house that was taken away, um, or just your sense of control about life. And that's why I would say for many of us, 2020 was a wilderness because we did not feel in control and that, that left us feeling completely disoriented. And so it's a place or circumstance where we depended on was taken away. Um, and we find ourselves, um, uncomfortable. We find ourselves being stretched. We find ourselves, um, feeling disoriented as a result. Um, and those forces, that experience in that place or circumstance, it invites us to change. And that's why for me, the road through the wilderness is often like the road through our favorite movies and our favorite stories. So if, if you follow the story of, you know, hey, we'll pick on Harry Potter because it's the fall. This is kind of Harry Potter season when everybody listens to the soundtrack and watches the movies. That all kind of tied to the holidays. Harry Potter has no idea who he is. He wakes up one day and he's pulled into this story where he is this, you know, chosen one, this wizard. All the things that he used to be able to know of his old life are gone. 
and he has to discover this whole new way of navigating and moving through the world. It stretches him. It challenges him. It, it ends up transforming him. And on the other side of it, he's a totally different person, but he couldn't be the person who does the things we see in the later movies if he didn't go through the wilderness and the discomfort that he experiences in the beginning. And so that's why I think wilderness is really hard and it's very natural when you're in a place or circumstance where you feel out of control, overwhelmed, you don't know what to do, you're disoriented, but the the picture from the far side of it, or if you can study other people's stories, you can see this may suck, but I'm going to be different on the other side of it. And I may become someone or be able to do something that I wouldn't if I hadn't gone through it. And that's why most of us rage against the wilderness when we're in the middle of it. But when we tell our life story, we point back to it and we go, I would never have become the person I was. We would never have the marriage we have. I would never have got into that work. I would have never gone after that dream if it hadn't been for that season. And so there is a larger, I think, redemptive and transformative vision you can have, whether you're a person of faith or not, in the wilderness. So let's come back to the question that kind of frames this series. You know, why do I still follow Jesus? Like, what would be the reason somebody in the wilderness would ask that question? Like, and I I think even what you're sharing is like, we can look at you online. You've got some super positive, you know, and I don't think that that's like a front. I think that that's, Hey, I'm trying to redeem this space. So I know that some people were just trying to show the highlight reels. And I think with you, it's this, you know, I'm, I'm here as a leader to redeem this space, but what would lead someone in the wilderness that they can't see that would ask, why do I still follow Jesus? Or why would the wilderness lead me to follow Jesus at all? What do you think are some of the expectations and assumptions that lead people to that question, either as someone who doesn't follow Jesus or someone who does follow Jesus? Well, I think we all, I think we all believe that life is going to work out better than it does. We have this expectation that things are going to go well for us. Um, that we're going to be able to avoid adversity, that we're going to be able to avoid pain. Um, unless I, I think our, our standard orientation, unless we have certain experiences, which I'll get to in a second, we tend to have a more positive orientation. But what happens is life typically beats that positivity out of us. Every cynic that I've met, and I would say personally, cause I'm a recovering cynic was once an idealist was once a positive person and they're a cynic in response to the loss of that idealism because of some negative circumstance. So, so if I'm being positive here, it's not because I have not experienced heartache, betrayal, disappointment, pain, grief, and loss. I have found hope in the middle of it because I've stared it in the face. I've, I've been through it. And on the other side, I have a different vision. So I would say if you're in the middle of the wilderness and you're a person of faith, you may be asking yourself, why should I still follow Jesus? Because this is not what I thought the bargain was. I thought the bargain was, I put my faith in Jesus. I read my Bible. I pray. I go to church. I tithe. I share my faith. I teach my kids about God. And this is what God allows to happen to me. What gives? 
why would I follow Jesus when I kept my end of the bargain? He didn't keep his end of the bargain. And that's where I think a lot of us would say, I don't believe in, in prosperity theology. I don't believe that God wants everybody to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. But functionally, I think a lot of us operate from this mindset where if I do my part, God is then beholden to me to do his part. Mm. And, and when we end up in the wilderness, that view shatters and we go, you know what? God is not beholden to me in any way. Um, I'm not God where I do these certain things and therefore these things have to happen in my life. God is God and he seems to do things without seeking my input. I tell people wilderness never sends a calendar invite. You know, you sent me a calendar invite for this call, Peter. Hey, hop online at this time and we'll have a conversation. Wilderness never sends a calendar invite. It shows up unannounced. It never asks permission. And that moment can be disorienting because that's not who you thought God was going to be or how you thought your life was going to go. And so in that moment, you go, hey, if this is what following Jesus led me into, and this is a picture of what my future holds, that I may end up in this kind of wilderness again, why would I want to keep going and experience more wilderness? Mm. Now, that's a very natural and normal question. And that's, you know, you look at the wilderness that, that Elijah experienced in 1 Kings 18 and 19, he ends up in the wilderness and he asks God to end his life. Now, this is this is just verses after he saw fire rain down from heaven and after he saw God bring uh, a flood at the end of a multi-year drought. And yet he's so exhausted, he's so overwhelmed by the threats of a king and queen to kill him that he ends up in the desert in the wilderness and he says, God, just, just take my life. I'm done. Take me out. And so if Elijah, who's like one of the two great prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, if he can end up there, we can all end up there where we're in the wilderness and we're ready to give up on, on life and on God. So I don't follow, let's pretend I don't follow Jesus and I'm hearing you talk and you're making this assumption, you know, God's not beholden to us. Um, <laughs> I think that's a very, um, there's just a lot there. But mm -hmm. I, I'm currently in the wilderness. Why would I follow a God that nicely allows me into the wilderness, at worst brings me into the wilderness? Why would I follow a God that does that? Well, I will tell you that the reason that I follow Jesus still is because of how I've experienced God in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. I think we, some of us expect that we, and we end up in the wilderness, we expect it, that it's because we did something wrong, that it's punitive. You said at worst, God pushes in the wilderness. And some of us think, well, I ended up in this wilderness because I sinned. I didn't do enough of this. I did too much of that. And so I'm out here because God's punishing me. Um, and what I experienced in the wilderness was I experienced not the harshness of God, but I experienced the tenderness of God in the wilderness in a way that I had been other places in my life. There's a story in the book of Hosea about Hosea um, talking to God and God says that he's going to lead his people into the wilderness so that he can speak softly and tenderly to him. And so what I experienced when I was in the wilderness is I experienced both. I've had some supernatural experiences and I've had some very run of the mill experiences where I feel like God was very good and kind to me. And I can't explain those circumstances any other way 
then um, God allowed or orchestrated something. Um, so for me personally, um, I, I look at the wilderness and I go, while I was in this circumstance that sometimes I chose, sometimes I didn't choose, I experienced the kindness and goodness and grace of God there in a way that reminded me that God was not a harsh, um, malevolent figure, that he was kind. Um, and I experienced, in some ways, a closer connection to God in the wilderness than I've experienced when my life was going perfectly well. So, so for me, I would say the wilderness doesn't have to be a place where God is absent mm-hmm. or God is punishing you. The wilderness can be a place where you discover God's presence and God's kindness and God's care in a way that you might not be open to or you might not expect mm-hmm. um, in that kind of place. Um, at least that has been my experience. And certainly as I've studied the Bible, looking for wilderness moments, I've seen that again and again from the beginning to the end. What was one of those supernatural experiences? I I was supposed to go on a retreat this, um, this summer. Um, and uh, I had a panic attack on the way to the retreat. Um, I started dealing with panic attacks about seven years ago. And so I was sitting in a target parking lot in a random city in California and I had a blood pressure cuff on my arm and I was talking to my doctor and the number on the blood pressure cuff read 199 over 120, which is crazy high. I mean, you go much higher than that, you're going to have a stroke. Um, and so I Googled an ER and I walked into an ER in a foreign city I'd never been in before and. They checked me out and my numbers settled so quickly that they knew I wasn't having a heart problem. Um, And I texted my wife and she's like, I think you're having a panic attack about what you're going to experience there. Um, And so I went to this retreat and typically I'm the kind of person on a retreat that I don't typically do all of the um, creative stuff. I don't go to the music class and the art class and the yoga class. You know, I, I don't, I go for like the meaty stuff. But I had already missed enough of the retreat by the time I got there from the hospital that I was like, I've got to get the most out of this because I've wasted so much of it with this panic attack. So I went to an art class and I am not an artistic person. I'm a creative person, but I'm not, I don't draw. I I literally failed coloring in kindergarten, you know, because I couldn't color inside the lines. I always left little white spaces when I cut, like I'm just not an artistic person. So I went to this art class and I started painting a picture of a sunset at a beach, which is where I'd been a couple days before that. And I like ruined the painting. You know, I I mixed up my colors wrong. It was going to look terrible. My nine-year-old daughter could have painted something better than that. And I was ready to throw up my hands, which is kind of what had been happening all through this weekend. God, this is not working out. This is not working out. And then it was as if I had a thought. And sometimes the scripture says God's voice is like a still small voice. I had a thought. What if you flipped it over? And so I, I took this, this easel or this, this you know, um, uh, canvas sitting on an easel and I flipped it upside down. And I realized that what I had painted that was a terrible um, like ocean made a beautiful sunset sky. And so then I started painting the other half of the painting 
And and though I would not put it up in an art gallery anywhere, and I wouldn't let anybody ever give me money for this piece of art, um, it it became this beautiful image for me. And and I I was sitting there staring at it once I once I finished it, and and my conclusion was, you can't always change what happened to you, but you can change your perspective. And mm-hmm. so I saw this painting as a, as a fail in the same way that I failed to get to this, you know, retreat on time. I failed to keep my anxiety under control. You know, I now was going to have a huge bill for my ER visit, you know, like I just like a failure. And again, I couldn't do anything right. And then I flipped that over and I said, you know what? Like I can't change what happened, but I can change my perspective. And, and just that nudge, I would never have thought to flip that over. I don't know where that came from. I, I believe it was God speaking to me. But that shift helped me to begin to reimagine what had happened to me so far on that um, retreat, what happened in my first seven years in this role, what had been happening with the wildernesses I was in. And so I, I still keep, I saw it last night sitting on my, on my bedside table, that piece of art. And it's just this constant reminder for me, um, you, you can't always change what happened and you can't always control the outcome, but you can change your perspective on it. And I think that's part of why I share that kind of positive, hopeful voice, Peter, is I, I've experienced enough life now to know, like, life is not going to submit to my demands. Like, my kids are not going to do what I want them to do. My wife is not going to do everything I want her to do or be everything I want her to be. My church getting hundreds of people to, I mean, unless you're a dictator, like they're just not going to do that. So, Mm -hmm. so if life is, if life is not going to submit to my demands and work out every way I thought the one thing I have some agency over is the perspective I take and the attitude I have. Um, and I have found that, that, that does give me enough as a follower of Jesus to begin to show up differently. And so it still isn't a beautiful work of art, um, but it's far better in its outcome ending than I, I had it when I wanted to walk away from it. Mm. That's beautiful. Um, I'm really glad you shared that. Um, here's what I want to do. Um, we actually, this is planned. Most of the time we tell you when stuff's unplanned, but um, so I'm going to give you um I want to give you three words, and the only unplanned part is I'm going to add a fourth word, but I'm not going to tell you what that word is yet. And when I tell you those words based on your story, I want you to talk to your 24-year-old self what you wish you would have known about it. So the first word is this, burnout. Hmm. If I could talk to 24-year-old Scott, I would tell him, you have limits. I, I burned out for the first time at 28, so I probably was headed towards that at 24. And I don't think I realized at 24 that I actually had limits. Mm. Um, so I, uh, I had a huge... Um, I love caffeine now, but I, I didn't drink anything like I did back then. You know, at 22, I averaged like eight or 900 milligrams a day of, of caffeine. I was doing 12 shots a day. Um, and I, uh, shots of I a, bought, a, 
shots espresso. of espresso. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah, going to say, not, you know. Not, not shots of tequila, I mean. Um, <laughs> although that, that's probably over the limit, too. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, shots of espresso. Um, so I just, I, I lived as if I didn't have limits, that I, I could do everything, solve, solve everything, be everything. And it took a lot of life experience for me to realize that I have limits. And I think, I think I would have avoided some of the burnout and some of the aftermath of that if I had embraced my limits sooner. Forgiveness. Mm. I think I would tell myself at 24 that being bitter doesn't hurt them, it hurts you. So I um, may have covered this in my first interview. I, I've written a lot on forgiveness. I've got a forgiveness course. I'm not a forgiveness expert, but I've learned a lot from hard, hard lessons. Um, I think I held on to bitterness really tightly when I was in my early 20s. And I, I thought that if I held on to it and I raged about it, that somehow I could make the person hurt um, or I could help ensure that it never happened again. And what ended up happening as a result, I just, I just hurt myself. I kept myself stuck. Um, mm -hmm. So I would tell myself, like, bitterness doesn't, it doesn't hurt them. It actually hurts you. Mm. Wilderness. Mm. Okay, this is this is this is the first like total like I haven't thought about this. This is just first instinct. I don't want to say it because I think people are going to just write it off. But I'm speaking to myself, so let me speak to myself. <laughs> I would tell myself, wilderness is a gift because. So many of the great things in my life I have because of what happened in the wilderness that I can see now because I look back over the wildernesses I've, I've been through. I'm 39 now, so 24, 15 years ago. So over the last 15 years, I think about the, all the wilderness experiences I've been through. On this side of them, I see so many gifts, um, so many good things in, in me and in my life that came out of those really hard seasons. And I know that at 24 on the front end, I couldn't have seen any of that. And so I would just, I would tell myself there, there is good stuff here and good stuff that will come from here. So don't disregard it, run away from it, um, label it as a, as a, as a curse. Um, this this season is going to have a gift in your life if you hold on and you look for it. Grief. Stop running from it. Yeah, I think that... Um, I think that I spent... I spent time avoiding my emotions um, a lot more back then than I do now. And um, 
that unprocessed, avoided grief um, This summer I said to my counselor, I said, um, when I don't grieve, it's like I'm pushing a beach ball down and eventually it pops out of the water sideways. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think I would tell my 24 year old self, like, stop running from it. It's only making it worse. Um, it's scary, certainly. Um, but the only way through, the only way to the other side of grief is going through it. So if you keep running from it, you're making it worse. So, so it's scary, but you have to turn and face it. What were you grieving when you were 24 that you look back on? Well, 24 was the beginning of my cynicism. So I think I was, I think I was grieving my expectation and vision of what I thought the church was going to be and what I thought serving in the church was going to be. And what I thought, um, the people who I had looked up to that I then started working with and saw a different side of them. Um, I was grieving the death of all of my dreams that were actually kind of like illusions. Um, so, so I can relate to a lot of people who are going through doubt and deconstruction right now. Cause I felt that was my experience in my early twenties, you know, the deconstruction movement of the last couple of years on TikTok reminds me a lot of what we used to call the emerging and emergent church of the late 2000s on the blogosphere. And so um, I, was, I was grieving what I thought this was going to be and what I thought this was like. And, um, and so that cynicism was in some ways like me protecting the last of my idealism from being hurt by anybody else. So that was a big piece of of my grief. And so instead of, instead of grieving and I just got angry and I was a critic and a cynic. You know, I'm sure our listeners relate to a lot. Um, you know, and if people don't know you, this is, uh, this is really deep. Um, just, you know, if, if they read their, your work, they get this, but if they see you online, it's probably, you know, they're like, Oh, this comes from him. So I think this is great. Um, you know, I just kind of want to go there because, you know, I, I do this idea of deconstruction, this idea of doubt. Um, how much of it do you think is really theological doctrine and how much of it really is um, I'm not experiencing Christianity the way I want to? or the way maybe it's intended. Maybe it's better just to ask that for you so you don't have to stereotype Yeah, it. well, yeah, it, it, yeah I, I don't want to speak for everyone because I, I think that the there, there's not, a, I think, a, a perfect way to summarize or generalize so many people. I think for mm -hmm. some people who I've talked to and I read, it really genuinely is theological. It is doctrinal. It is philosophical. And so that's where their arguments are, that's where their struggles are. Um, other people, it's biographical. It's part of mm -hmm. their story and their experience. And, and so th there's, there's a mix of both with people who it's one or the other. And some people it's a combination. Um, for me, it was biographical. Um, I was going through experiences in my own story that left me profoundly disillusioned and frustrated with the gap between what I thought people were like and who they really were like, 
how I thought things worked and they actually worked and what I expected, you know, going into serving in my first church and what they actually included. And so there was a huge biographical piece. Um, I think it became theological that there were some things that I had um, to detangle. Uh, for me, it was it was my my experience was more what I would call detangling than deconstructing. Mm-hmm. You know, there were things that got moved in together that weren't actually the same thing, and you were trying to like like Christmas lights that, that got tangled up. You were having to untangle and separate. Um, you know, what is what is American versus what is Christian? You know, what is cultural versus what is Christian? Um, and uh, and so. So I would say for me, it was it was more biographical. Um, but but I do think even if your experience in that is not primarily theological, um, if you go through enough biographical and personal struggle and hurt, eventually that shows up in your doctrine, because mm-hmm. all of us, as as my friend Marissa says, all of us are theologians, whether we like it or not. And we are building and we're doing theology when it comes to God. And for a lot of people, the primary shaping force in their doctrine is their experience and their biography. Um, and so so often what happens is the experience drives you to change your biography or change your beliefs. And so um, I think it's hard sometimes to distinguish where biography and experience starts and when theology and doctrine starts. Why do you still follow Jesus? Uh, you know, when I saw that you guys were doing this new theme, I, I thought about that question even before we talked about me being a guest. I, I have too many experiences, too many moments where the things that I read in the Bible as a kid um, became real and tangible ways for me that I just can't deny. Um, I think about that man in the gospels that um, is called before the religious leaders after Jesus heals him. And they're asking him all these questions and his parents are trying to get him to deny it. And he says, I, I don't know, you know, whether this man is the Messiah or anything about what you talked about, but what I do know is what I've seen and what I've heard and what I've experienced. And I can't deny that. And I feel that that way um, personally, you know, I still have questions that I'm wrestling with when it comes to my faith I've got the scars and the scabs from the hurts that I've received in the context of the church. Um, following Jesus is not easy. Being a pastor is not easy. Um, but I can't deny what I've seen and what I've heard and what I've experienced. And I have found in Jesus someone who loves me and I experience his love not for what I do, but for who I am. And he becomes for he becomes for me a a safe place in a very unsafe world. Um, and I have I've experienced that love in a way that's not that I can't deny. Um, and I've experienced his goodness and kindness in ways I can't deny. And so I'm following him because I've not found that anywhere else. Um, and I'm a recovering people pleaser and performer. And when when I am aware of the presence of Jesus, I can take a deep breath and I can rest. I don't have to perform. I don't have to achieve. Um, 
And everywhere else I go, there's that pressure and temptation. So that's why I still follow Jesus. I don't think there's a way to close except the way that you just closed. So I don't usually do that, but um, I think it's just appropriate. So um, we'll we'll tag everything at scottsavagelive.com. But Scott, why don't you just pray for our listeners? Um, I actually think that's the perfect way for us to close this episode. Okay. Jesus, we just thank you for this time. I uh, thank you for everyone who's listening or watching to some part of this. And I thank you for the people who were tempted at some point to turn it off or check out, but who, who hung with us. Um, I just pray for the, the wilderness and the difficulty that they're in the middle of. If they're really wrestling with the question, why do I follow Jesus in the midst of all this? That means that they're in the midst of something really, really hard, really, really painful. Um, and their willingness to listen to me and my story um, and not turn me off. I just am, I'm grateful for that. And I just pray that in the midst of whatever it is that they're facing today, um, I pray that you would show yourself to be real and that you would show them that you see them, that you hear them, that you know what they're going through and that you care. And I pray that you would meet them in the middle of whatever it is that they're facing. Um, if it's your will, I pray that you would lessen the adversity. I pray that you would lessen the pain. I pray that you would shorten the time. But I pray that they would discover you in this place in a way that is so real that they can't deny. And I pray that they would experience you speaking to them like you spoke to Hosea with tenderness and love and care. And I pray that you would, you would work in them and that you would um, shape them in a way that they can look back on this time in their life and go, I, I would never choose that ever again. I would never want to go through that or wish that on somebody else. But that made me who I am. And there were real gifts in that place for me. I pray that, that you would help them to be able to help others because of what they've been through. Um, and that you would show them the purpose and the way in which you're not going to waste what happened to them. So thank you for this podcast. Thank you for the work that Peter and the other hosts are doing. And in a world of cynicism and hurt, um, I thank you that they're offering and pointing people to hope and healing with real honesty. Thank you for loving us, Jesus, and thank you for taking care of us so tenderly. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.